All right, you've entered back into the steam room. It's presented by Tissot, the official watch of the NBA. Chuckster, season two, has come to a close. But uh, you know what they like to do, you know, Cap and those guys. They like to do a special bonus episode. You know what we're going to do in this bonus episode? We're going to look at all the special, 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 special guests we had all year. You're too good. You're too good. This season really was filled with a lot of impactful and I would say uh, hilarious at times conversations. No telling what our guests might bring into the steam room. Remember when we had Bill Walton and it was a poem? Uh, Bill Walton was, that was hilarious. It was hilarious. I am honored to be on this remarkable program here. I do not believe that we can start a show of this epic magnitude and historical proportion without a quick and brief poem from Ernie. No, I, I no, I, I just can't do, I can't do poems like you don't, have, you don't even have two lines. You know what? Here's what I can tell you here in the steam room. We have few rules. Good. Keep on your towel. We don't want to see your jewels. Oh, my. very nice. No, I'm fully clothed. Okay, good. And I am ready to go. All right. And I'm going to play out three songs to get this show going here. Go. Not fade away. I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. Lost sailor into state of circumstance. Sure don't know what I'm going for, but I'm going to go for it for sure. I used to be a lost sailor away too long at sea. Now I'm a tiger in a trance, a state of circumstance. There's no time to lose. And then when I paint my masterpiece, the streets of Indy are filled with rubble. Ancient footprints are everywhere. You'd almost think that we're seeing double on this beautiful run to the title in Indiana. We actually had a couple of college basketball national champions with us this season. We had uh, Baylor Bears head coach Scott Drew. You know what? I love Scott Drew. I really appreciate him and his family. I know his brother Bryce really well. I got, I've got to know his dad, Homer, a little bit. They're an extraordinary family. Every morning you wake up and you're exhausted because 24-7 you're trying to get back to everybody because it's important that you respond to everybody that sends you a message. But then also having great opportunities to be like on this show and hearing Charles Barkley say national champ. I mean, you, you want to be able to do <laughs> these opportunities. And then when you get tired or worn out, we say these are national championship problems. So that refreshes us and we know these are good problems to have. And uh, the coffee machine's right close to the door, so we good. We just keep it going. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling you've been into that this morning. Oh, yeah, this is the third one already. It's going to be a serious question. Who's the worst coach in the Drew family? <laughs> hey, really, really blessed to have a great, great family. And you're part of that family. I mean, my brother, again, I can't thank you enough for you taking care of him his rookie year in the NBA. Um, he, he, his favorite times were some of your stories. I remember when uh, you were on one of the planes and uh, there, there was some smoke coming out and uh, everybody's panicking and everyone's uh, about to lose their mind and calm, cool and collected. Charles Barkley says, I don't know about the rest of you, but me, Bryce and Brent, we going to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> and the legendary Coach K stopped by. Well, Coach K, man, uh, being able to walk away when you want to, he's in the conversation of the greatest coaches of all time. And, you know, that's a very short list when you win that many championships and you're at a school that many years. But uh, to have those coaches on, it was really special. 
Wow, Coach K, thanks a lot for making time. This is huge for us, man. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to be on. I brought two towels. <laughs> I, I knew I knew if I, I, I might be getting double teamed here. So I got two of them, man. I got Outstanding. Two of them. Outstanding. So, uh, hey, Chuckster, when was the first time you met Coach K? It was in a weight room. I, I was really nervous. I had seen him from a distance. And we were asked, I think we we're like the only two. Well, give me a year here. Oh, on the dream team. Dream team. Okay. Yeah. So I was just, I was wondering if you'd met before that. Well, what's really interesting about your question, Ernie, because what year did you go to Duke? Yeah. No, we played you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, this was his first year at Duke. Because like I say, I remember saying myself 30 years later, what, uh, about 30 years, somewhere 15, 20 years. I said, how long have you been at Duke? Since 80. I says. We played them in college. Yeah. Um, and Arnie, let me tell you something. You're not going to get any calls there. Uh, you're not going to get any calls there, Duke. <laughs> uh, but, um, Coach, uh, I got to tell this story. I love it when you preface a story that way, Chuckster. I can't wait for this. Wait. Hey, Ernie. Ernie, yeah. the third towel's coming out. <laughs> so, uh, Ernie, Ernie, yes, Chuck. I've never been this scared in my life. So we're playing on the dream team. Scotty, Michael, me and Magic played cards every single night. So his daughter says, Charles, can I go get a couple of beers out your mini bar? I said, of course. She comes back. She brings me the key. I go to the room about five hours later. My mini bar is empty, Ernie. <laughs> I said, oh, shit. <laughs> I said, all my miniatures are gone. The couple of beer. I thought that she was going to get a couple of beers for her and her little girlfriends. I get back earning. My minute bar is completely empty. And I said, oh, shit. I get to practice the next day. Coach K is on one end. I'm on the other end. Coach K comes to the other end. I'm circling Ben to get into the other end. I don't want to get close to this man. <laughs> it's true. This is a true story. It, this is a true story. Right? I'm like, oh, I, I'm, listen, I'm terrified. And coach, after practice, coach says, uh, can I talk to you? I said, yes, sir. Coach, I'm so sorry. I, she said she was only going to get a couple beers, blah, blah, blah. And he said, it's all right. It wasn't your fault. It was her fault. Oh, my God. All right, I, laugh, I was so scared. I'm not going to lie. Give us your side of that story, coach. No, it's uh, she actually drank some of those things. <laughs> I think she sold the rest on the rhombus you know, uh, where Charles walked from midnight <laughs> to six in the morning every uh, every night after he played cards. But I'll tell you what, I brought all three, all three of my daughters and my wife, and you guys were amazing. You know, what Ernie, what they did, you know, that's the explosion for our sport globally was not just that team, but how they were. They were the guys who built the NBA, obviously the Bill Russells and Coot and all them. But in the 80s, it, it, it was a different game. And USA had no culture. And what these guys brought was an amazing culture of togetherness and pride. And, uh, and then USA basketball lost it for a while after that. But it, it was one of those... It was a dream experience. Everybody on that team became friends. Yeah, they they were friends uh, for life. I mean, and like Charles and I have been friends since then, and but all the other guys too. Yeah, Chuck always tells these stories about these all night card games and stuff. They did. So, they did. So, why not? But what was it like while these guys are doing this? What did Chuck Daly have you doing? Well, Chuck was a master. He was the perfect choice 
to coach that team. First of all, that was there in the bad boys, Detroit, Michael. So he, he played golf with Michael. Michael never slept ever. He <laughs> never, ever, ever, ever slept. It's, he's, it's, it's unbelievable. Like he would play like 36 holes a day yeah. after practice and do the same thing every day. It was, he, I've never seen a guy who never sleeps and play with that level. I tell the story. Uh, we're in the Tournament of Americas. Uh, yeah. And so, gonna... so, we, so we get up one morning. We got a game. I think the game's like at 6 o'clock. I think we're playing Puerto Rico. Yeah, in Portland. So me, yeah, in Portland. So me, David Robinson, Chuck Daly, and Michael go and play uh, 18 holes of golf. And then Chuck said, by this time, it's around noon. He said, hey, well, let's go back and get some rest. Michael's like, well, I'm going to play 18 more. <laughs> we're going to like, Michael, we got a game tonight. He's like, I'm going to play 18 more. And, you know, when Michael says it, Michael's going to play 18 more. <laughs> so we get to the game. Everybody's talking. Chuck says, hey, Charles, you got this guy. Patrick, you got this guy. Scotty, you got this guy. He's Michael, you got He says, oh, no, no, I got the point guard. And Chuck says, no, he's the, he's the point guard, Michael. And Michael looks up at him, Ernie, and says, he says some shit about me in the newspaper. I got him. And Michael guarded this dude like it was game seven of the finals, Ernie. Right. Like after he played 36 holes of golf. And we're sitting there, that's some, it's something wrong with that dude. <laughs> he had read in the newspaper that this guy said that Michael Jordan was overrated and he could score on him. And I'm not even lying, Ernie. He guarded this guy like it was game seven of the finals. That's how crazy he's talking about. This dude never needed sleep. Hey, Ernie, I got to tell you something, man. When y'all surprised me with Jimmy Kimmel, I love doing his show, but he keeps inviting me to Idaho to go fishing. And I keep saying I'm going to go, but I don't know how to get to Idaho. But one of these days, I'm just going to show up in Idaho and I'm going to say, hey, where does Jimmy Kimmel live? And you know, they're going to say, oh, he lives over there. Because when you're a celebrity, everybody knows where you live in town. There's your surprise, Chuckster. Wow. How's it going? My fishing buddy. That's right. I hope hey, so. Hey, Jimmy keeps inviting me to, is it Quarter Lane? Uh, no, it's uh, Swan Valley, Idaho. And I'm going to go and go fishing with him because he knows how much I love to fish. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well. How you doing? Man, I am good. You know, it's a little crazy with the COVID situation in the NBA. We're going to have to work all summer, so they're going to screw up our fishing trip. Yeah, but you know what? You'll have part of the summer for sure. Don't make excuses. You're already trying to get out of this. When you get the call to do your show and you're like, are you serious? What was that first initial call like? It was very strange, first of all, because I had never auditioned for the show and I'd never even had a meeting about doing the show. I had a meeting with the president of the of ABC and I, I went home and then weirdly, my uh, partner on the air at that time, Adam Carolla, his wife was Lloyd's assistant and she called and said, they're going to offer you a talk show at ABC. And I was like, what? <laughs> I had no idea they even were looking for a talk show at ABC. And then the next day I was in their office and they were toasting me and, and I had a show. And even the day that the show was announced to the advertisers at the upfront in New York, uh, as I was walking out on stage, I was always under the impression that the show was a half an hour long and uh, one of the journalists said, so you're going to do an hour long show. And I was like, um, no, no, the show's a half hour. And 
reporter goes, you better check that because I was told it was an hour. <laughs> and I asked the one of the women I worked with, I said, how long is the show? She's like, it's an hour. I was like, oh, OK. And then I was right out on stage for you guys. Can I ask you guys a question? Sure. Of course. As I've told Charles, I love your show. I really I think it is not just the best sports show, but I think it's one of the best shows on television, one of the best talk shows on television. And as I told Charles, like my wife has no interest in basketball whatsoever. But when I'm watching, she will sit down and watch because you guys have such great chemistry together. And the show is just so funny, uh, aside from talking about basketball in an expert way. Are you guys like appreciative of the chemistry that you have together? And are you aware of how special it is, I guess? I mean, uh, I know you do the show and you do it a lot and you do it for years. And maybe sometimes that escapes you. But do you guys think about that? Number one, yes. I love working with these three guys. We are, and we're all like three, four totally different guys. You know, we all, us three play three different positions. Mm-hmm. Ernie is just a great person, hard worker, got 112 kids. He's adopted 100 of them. So he is really grounded. Mm-hmm. But I give a lot of credit to the people behind the scenes because – you know, Jim, I don't think people realize we're on from 8 to 2 o'clock in the morning. And that's a long time to have people sitting at home. I love basketball, and I don't want to sit at home from 8 to 2 in the morning to talk about basketball. <laughs> that, that is the stupidest thing in the world. So what TNT has done, first of all, we always hope the games are good. Those six hours we're on television, they seem like 12 when we get two bad games. That, yeah, right. I mean, it's got to be like that when you when you get a shitty guest and he like after you in one letter, he's like, yeah, I need a little bit more. We got to fill the whole segment. But when we get two shitty games, it's a it's even longer than six hours. <laughs> but the people behind the scenes at Turner, man, they are ready for everything. Any one of us can throw out an idea. Hey, let's go here. We're going to have an hour and a half block to talk about something stupid because this is a 20 point blowout and we're not going to talk about it. That chemistry thing, too, Jimmy, that you ask about, I mean, that's such a nebulous uh, thing, you know, because there were always. Yeah, wait, two, hey, there, hey, there hey, always, hey, hey, ho, ho. What the hell does nebulous mean? Well, you're right there <laughs> right now. Um, I uh, I would say there were always so many executives, Jimmy, who say, oh, I have the exact combination of people and it's going to work perfectly because I've seen this guy interviewed and he's really uh, engaging and and then it just doesn't work that way. This this just kind of happened, man. I mean, it was just like, you know, Kenny and I were working together. Uh, we have a chance to bring Charles on. Who's not going to do that? And and thankfully, he he decided, you know, TNT rather than NBC. And then and then we bring the world's biggest kid along about eight or nine years ago in Shaq. And everybody's just themselves. And I think there's something that you referenced earlier that we don't rehearse anything, you know, and you're a big sports fan. You've seen a million shows. You know that there are certain shows out there that look like, man, they must have rehearsed that segment 15 times because it was just like this guy spoke and this guy spoke and this guy spoke. And we don't rehearse anything, man. If, if I got no idea what Charles might say when we sit down, we have a kind of a plan. Me and the producer have kind of a plan. And all of a sudden Chuck sits down to start the show and says, can I get something off my chest? 
And all of a sudden, all that stuff we talked about in the production meeting never hits the air. So that's what makes it great. And I think that's what, you know, we're just allowed to be ourselves. And I think that's the chemistry. Isn't that funny is that that, that is almost always the answer when you see a situation where it just works, where you go like, mm-hmm. we're like, even like if you go back to like Regis and Kathy Lee or, you know, some of these combinations of people, it just, it was not an accident, but it just kind of worked and he kept building on it and then trusting that it would work and knowing that if time needed to be filled, that you guys would be able to fill it in a very satisfying way. And I think that's, uh, it's the mistake that so many of these shows make, especially you see like some of these daytime talk shows, they'll put together a panel and inevitably it winds up exploding and they want to kill, they all want to kill each other. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever happened to that group? (laughs) I'm sure you guys want to kill each other every once in a while, but so far there have been no deaths. By the way, Chuck, when you get to Montana, take a left and you'll get to (laughs) Idaho. A highlight for me was when Maria Taylor joined us on the heels of her commencement speech at our alma mater, the University of Georgia. Telling the story about her grandmother, that was so inspirational and powerful. To tell that story in front of big crowds, it's just awesome. But I just like her a lot as a person, but man, her commencement speech was so powerful. She made the dogs proud. Her name is Lavonia Matthews, and she's from Athens, Georgia. Like my family, my mom's side of the family is from Athens. So with me that night, I had one of her cousins. Her name was Roz. And they always grew up Bulldog fans, loved everything about it. But obviously, they grew up in the 40s and 50s. So they couldn't even, she would tell stories about how they would have to stay on the other side of the street. Like they couldn't touch the arch or they couldn't walk under the arch unless you worked there or something. And so for her to be able to be there and go in and be in the president's box was like this huge 180 that she had never experienced. And I probably wrote three different versions of the speech and I sent it to one of my producers and he's like, I just feel like you should dig into your grandmother's story more. And then as we thought about it, and it was the 60th anniversary of the desegregation of Georgia, like there were too many things that lined up that needed to be mentioned. And she was the reason I went to Georgia, to be honest. She wanted someone to graduate from there. She was really sick at my graduation, but she came to every single event and was so excited, like ecstatic about it. And all she knew was that, like, if you graduate from Georgia, you'll have this crazy network. You'll probably be successful. I know I couldn't do it, but I want you to go and be able to do it and never harbored ill will about it or anything. And so that's something that I always took away from her. She's always been an inspiration to me from beginning to end, had her own company, was in the army, anything you could think of, name it. She had been there and done that. You know, that's what I was going to ask you when you're talking about your speech, like she really wanted you guys to go to University of Georgia to have that heart, uh, that emotion. They're like, no, no, no. It is what it is back in the day, but I still want you guys to go to school. That, that was amazing when you were talking about it. Cause she felt like this is what we fought for. You know what I mean? Like, the, we couldn't go so that you could, or, you know, we crawled so you could walk, but, you know, basically I, we get to sprint and run. And so she didn't want us to take that for granted. And like, she always preached education. And I'm telling you when it was like, I would be in school, she would know if Matthew Stafford was hurt before I did, you know, like that's how much she cared about Georgia, like calling me, like, is he okay? But where is no Sean? And are we going to be Auburn? You know what I mean? Like, that's how much she cared about Georgia, even though she really shouldn't have. Like, she should have looked at this place and she drove by it all the time, lived right past Broad Street. I mean, Ernie knows all of the destinations and saw the university all the time, but couldn't walk on the campus. 
and still loved it to its core. But as it always does uh, here in the steam room, in our various conversations, Maria's interview took a, uh, let's say, a left turn. What does Maria Taylor do in her spare time? My dad has a bunch of land in Macon, Georgia. Like, we'll go down to the land and, like, mow the grass. I'm kind of country. Like, I really, my whole goal in life is to, like, they have, I don't know, 75 acres. I want it to turn into a farm so bad. Like, I want the land to be cleared out. I mean, I don't know that I can be a farmer, but I could manage it. You know what I mean? Just go back and forth and be able to have that going. I told my dad, I'm like, you know what? He needs to grow some cannabis down there. And he needs to grow. I want a pumpkin patch and a watermelon patch. That's the goal. Wait, you went from pumpkin and watermelon to cannabis? Well, because that's going to make the money. And then the kids come for the pumpkin. And then they come in the summer for the watermelon. Hey, hey, the kids come for the pumpkin. Their parents can go get the cannabis. Exactly. You can make money. And you just, it's an organic farm. I like it. You know, my wife, Cheryl Ann, has a, we have a greenhouse here. So, and she's growing all kinds of stuff in there. So I'm going to take her down to Macon then, Ernie. Yeah, Chuck, what do you think? Should I get Cheryl Ann to expand her horizons on the, uh, on the greenhouse here? Uh, listen, hey, man, you know, for some reason, I'm not on the cannabis bandwagon. Well, don't act like I am. Come on. Right. I'm not either. I'm just trying to make my dad money. <laughs> I got friends who smoke religiously. And, I, and, I, and I've said this. I've smoked pot five times in my life. And I was like, yo, man, I don't feel anything. It does zero for me. It don't make me feel no type of way. I tell people. I, all it makes me want to do is eat some potato chips. I cannot get enough <laughs> potato chips in my mouth after I smoke pot. Hey, Maria, I'm telling you the truth. It did nothing for me. Uh-huh. And I was just like, yo, man, I just got the munchies. I, I, I don't, I, they're like, oh, man, you get used to it. It's going to do this and do that. I'm like, yo, man, I just need some potato chips. It didn't do shit for me. It didn't do nothing. I'm just hungry now. It's I'm just hungry the now. Diet. I'm trying to be healthy. And now it's ruining everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Another thing, Chuckster, our conversations uh, oftentimes were bigger than basketball. Here's Kyle Korver on how his NBA career motivated him to speak up on matters of race and social justice. Kyle, what is it like being a, a white player in a predominantly black league? And how much did that impact you? How did you feel about that? Did you ever make a big thing about it? Did it ever make you feel uncomfortable? You know, I've got a, a unique story and just that I was, I've been in the minority and then the majority, literally back and forth every single time that I moved. So, and I've moved a lot. I started off in Paramount, California. Like I said, I lived there until I was 12. Me and my family, we were some of the, some of the minorities in the city. And then I moved to a town of 10,000 white people right? In, in Iowa. And then I went to Creighton, was back at some diversity. My rookie year in Philly, I was the only white guy on the team. And then I got traded to Utah. And so I was in Salt Lake, which is, you know, it's a white city. Yeah. And I went to Chicago and Atlanta, right? Where diversity and, and, and these conversations are happening a lot. And then I go back uh, to Cleveland and I watch LeBron really speak up in this space and be, me being like, hmm, I don't know if I really speak up that much about things like this. And then I go back to Utah, and now I'm in Milwaukee, which some people say is the most segregated city in, in America today, right? So 
it's just a unique story in that I go back and forth. And because of that, like you would think that um, I would have understood a bit more, right? Like I always felt like, like I probably don't understand everything, but I probably, I think I probably understand a good bit. I'm, I'm certainly not part of any problem, right? But then it really was when I was in Atlanta and when I was there, there was a lot of things happening in the country and our team. And I began to realize, I'm listening to people have Black Lives Matter conversation for the first time. And I'm, I'm having two separate conversations with my white friends and my black friends. And I'm fine. Like, you know what? I think I, I don't think I know what I know. And I think I, if I want to be an actual friend, like an actual teammate, I have some work that I have to do. And that, I think that was the beginning for me. And that, I mean, I mean, I'd like to say that I've always just been with the movement, but I think as a white man, how you help right now is by understanding where you haven't been, where you've been complicit, understanding our place in history and our place in society and, 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 and what we've actually been a part of and, and confessing that Right. And then and then once you've done that, then you can start to go to work and try to be about progress. And so, I mean, it's been I don't know how many years that's been for me now, but I think regardless, 2020 has been a year for every white American to understand a whole lot of things for the first time. No doubt. We have learned and our eyes have been opened in ways that we never knew before. You know, Ernie, the interesting thing about sports, it kind of makes you colorblind to a certain degree. Because, number one, as a, as a famous black person, I don't get treated like regular black folk. And I get special privileges that most black folks don't get. And so I have to be really cognizant of like, yo, man, you need to open your eyes and pay attention. And then when, I, and like, when you play sports with white guys, you don't even look at them as white. They're just your teammates. So you're thinking like, you have to really come out of your shell because... Sports is one of the few things where whites and black actually inter intersect together and spend a lot of time together. You know, I think Dr. King said the most segregated day of the week is Sunday. Uh, you know, blacks and whites don't, a lot of them don't go to church together. And when I heard that said for the first time, I was like, man, that really is true. Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. Uh, but when you play sports, uh, my best friend from high school is a guy named Pep Mark. I love him like a brother, and he's been an amazing friend. But I remember the first time his family invited me to his house. And I told my mom, I said, Mom, Pep, family invited me to the house. I'm going to go over there. She says, well, you know they live on the white side of town. And I'm like, Mom, I have no idea what you're talking about. She's like, do you know this the, the, our life. I said, yeah, I'm a, like a 14, 15 year old kid. And uh, she says, do you want to go? And I said, yeah. I said, me and Peppa, cool. And she was like, okay, if you're comfortable. And I remember saying, mom, I don't want to live like y'all live. I said, when I got older, I said, mom, I don't want to live like y'all live. I don't want to have a black side of town and a white side of town. I says, I want to live on the white side or the black folks want to live, the white folks can come over here and live. I says, this stuff has been going on for so long, until y'all get y'all stuff together, uh, and I remember that that conversation. And like, and I, I always tell Pepper and his family, I want to thank them for inviting me to like to open up my heart to like, hey, I want to be friends with white people. Uh, I don't want to be like, no, y'all stay on y'all side of town because we gonna we, we gonna have to work together to make this thing work. I, I think um, 
there's a lot of people who want to just see everyone as equal right now and be like, I see you as a man. I see you as a woman. Let's just keep on living. But I think the thing that most white people aren't taking into account is our history. And a lot of this because we haven't really been taught what it really was. And we don't take account the story of black Americans, right? Like the actual story and, and, and the hardships they've had to go through. And so it, you, you can't just say, let's be cool right now. Let's just keep on going. Like we have to acknowledge what has happened. And we have to acknowledge the white supremacy that is laced within every institution and system in our country. And, and that's, that's a hard thing for white people to grapple with. But it's, it's like I said, it's a really important part of this story if we want to move forward. You know, Ernie, man, getting Coach Dungy, who everybody admire and respect, people listening to him, I think is really important. You know, when he talks about diversity uh, in coaching, in front office and things like that, it's something we really need to talk about. You know, 30, 40 years ago, those jobs were all white jobs, but for him to be an outspoken proponent of it is pretty cool. And, and he's the right leader for us to talk about it with. What are we going to do about the lack of black coaches in the NFL? Charles, it, it is, it's troubling. And we've gone through this in periods of time. Uh, it's gotten better, then it's gotten worse. I think we've got to educate our owners and general managers on what they need to look for. I, I don't think they really understand. They've got a blueprint that is very small, and uh, they don't really understand that you can come outside that blueprint and still be successful. But it is, it's disturbing when over the last three years, and this hiring cycle is not over yet, but out of the last 18 coaching hires, there's been one African-American out of 18. Uh, and people can say, well, it's all based on merit and the best people rise to the top and all that. But there's no way in the National Football League in 2020 that one out of 18 makes sense. How much of a factor is that feeling, you know, the contacts you make, the guys you've hired, the guys you've worked with, and that recycling phenomenon? There's some of that, but Ernie, some of it is that these owners really just don't know what they're looking for. Uh, the commissioners had me talk to people that were in the middle of their coaching search. Some people have just called me and said, hey, would you recommend somebody to me? I'm, I'm in a coaching search. And my first question to them is, what are you looking for? Tell me what you're looking for, and then I can recommend somebody to you. And so many of them will say, well, I don't really know. I just want a good coach. Or I'm looking for someone to come in and straighten my quarterback around and get my quarterback squared away. And I think, well, if that's all you're trying to do, you might not get the best person. Uh, the last I looked, Bill Belichick won a bunch of Super Bowls, and he wasn't a quarterback specialist. And Pete Carroll has won Super Bowls, and he's not a quarterback specialist. So if you're just narrowing it down to say, I just want this, I want an offensive guy who calls great plays, or I want a quarterback guru, you might not get the best person. Leadership uh, you know, is special. That, that's how you win. And, and I'm sure Charles can tell you. Uh, the best coaches in the NBA, the best coaches in the NFL aren't necessarily the guys who have the best X's and O's, but they're the people who can bring people together and lead a team. And, and that's what you need to look for. And that can come in all shapes and sizes and all colors. And I think we, we kind of lose track of that sometimes. Okay, so there's been this great thing uh, with the black quarterback. You know, 10, 15 years ago, they scrambled too much. They don't stay in the pocket now. 
being a black quarterback, guys are just uh, awesome and amazing. Uh, has that been fun for you to watch that the way it came on? It really has, Charles. I came up in the in the mid seventies. I was in college, and there were guys in the sixties and seventies who could have been Russell Wilson and Deshaun Watson and Robert Griffin, and they didn't get the opportunity. Some guys that did fabulous things. Uh, 1976 was uh, my senior year in college. I played a game. I was quarterback in the University of Minnesota. We played the University of Washington. Warren Moon was uh, quarterbacking them. I was leading the Big Ten in passing. Warren was leading the Pac-10 in passing. We had a shootout. They beat us. Neither one of us got drafted. They told me my skill set didn't fit the NFL. I needed to change positions and be a defensive back. They told Warren his skill set didn't fit the NFL. He needed to go to Canada. He wanted to be a quarterback, so he went to Canada, won five great cups, set all kinds of records, and came back. But it, it's crazy to think. If, if 30 years ago, people saw that and said, well, these guys, we can't use them in the NFL because they don't fit what we do. What they've done now is say, Russell Wilson, I'm going to fit my system to you. I'm going to let you do what you do. Deshaun Watson, I'm going to fit my system to you. And we see this fantastic stuff. And it's great. And that's what I tell people, even as we go back to this head coaching thing. What if we kept ourselves in a box and we said, nah, we don't want Deshaun Watson. We don't want Russell Wilson. We don't want Patrick Mahomes. Think about what we would be missing. And the game wouldn't be as good. Well, now when we do the same thing and say, well, I, you know, I'm going to disregard these African-American coaches over here because they don't fit exactly what I'm looking for. We may be missing something that would take the game to another level that, that we don't even realize. Anderson Cooper joined us and uh, discussed the state of our nation and how we can move forward. We're never going to have a more fun guest than Anderson Cooper. Uh, number one, to have somebody who has to actually study the news every day is always important. Because, you know, there's so many things to get lost. Because we are, we all kind of live in our own little world. But there's no way you can go on television every day and not be well-versed on all the stuff that's happening. We are honored, Anderson, to have you with us. I guess there's nothing going on in your world these days, huh? Yeah, it's a pretty quiet time. I'm happy to talk for a couple of hours. If you want, you know? <laughs> How did we get to the point in the greatest country in the world that Democrats and Republicans have to disagree on every subject? Everybody sticks to party lines, no matter what the subject is. How did we get in this awful spot where you have to have a majority of one to do what's best for the entire country? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know the moment it happened. I think it's been a slow, you know, turning in this direction. Certainly doesn't help to have, you know, all these different media outlets and with social media and, you know, every, anybody can start a, uh, you know, a conspiracy website and start, you know, there's so much information and so much false information being pumped out. People have ended up listening to, only, you know, the, the people that they agree with. And you can live in, you know, you can live in an echo chamber of Trump world and only listen to people who tell you that the election is false. And in that kind of world, there's no incentive to bring people together. Dividing people is what, you know, economically works for some of these, you know, these opinion channels, for some of these uh, opinion 
uh, sites. It's all about division. It's all about stoking up people and getting people riled up as opposed to, you know, none of which is about actually getting things done and, and actually accomplishing stuff. Anderson, what did Donald Trump do well in his four years? Look, I think the 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 speed of the operation, you know, Operation Warp Speed, as it was called, the the, the resources put into developing a vaccine uh, is an extraordinary accomplishment. I, I don't think he gets all the credit for that, but it certainly uh, that was a big emphasis on his. I, I certainly wish that he actually then had a plan for the distribution of it, because as we've seen, it's pretty messed up right now just trying to get vaccines to people was always going to be an incredibly difficult challenge, but it doesn't help when there's no actual federal plan for that, when it's just left up to the states and the states don't have the resources to really do this as well as they should. Uh, so the rollout of it, I think, has been botched. And, and I think, obviously, the administration's response to this is uh, just shameful. Um, he's been completely checked out for a long, long time. Um, you know, we have people dying every few seconds in this country now from from COVID, and the president has said nothing uh, about this uh, for for quite some time, and hasn't been to you know meetings on this for for months and months and months. So I think that's pretty shameful. But I, you know, the emphasis on on the vaccine has has been an accomplishment. Um, you know, if you had money in the stock market, then you know you've done pretty well probably in the last couple of years. But most Americans don't have money in the, in the stock market, um, you know, and the deficit is Republicans used to care about the deficit. Um, that seems to have gone out the window. The deficit is through the roof right now. So I think the this administration, I think, will go down in history uh, in a very poor way. I don't think this is going to age. You know, the history is not going to be kind, I think, to to this president. What's the biggest challenge facing Joe Biden now? Man, which one? I mean, there's just like, it's, this is incredibly challenging time. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know. Look, I'm no economic expert, but, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of hurt out there. There's people on, you know, all sides of the political aisle, all different backgrounds. You know, I mean, I live in New York City. I've stuck it out here throughout, throughout this entire time. And, you know, there's every, the, Bar next to me is closed down. The businesses on my street are uh, are closing down. Uh, it's it's brutal, and um, this disease is you know this virus is still out there, and the rollout is is you know there's there's COVID, there's the economy, um, but also just the and we are so divided, and and people are so angry, and there's so much hostility. I think just lowering the temperature is something that everybody needs to do. I mean, myself included and, and everybody who's, you know, reporting it, it, you know, it just, it's not sustainable and it's not good for this country. And, um, we, I don't know, I think we all just need to kind of take a deep breath and just, you know, really think about who we want to be as a country and wh how we want to be, because I mean, I've, I hear people talking about civil war and as if it's like, you know, just kind of some sort of palate cleanser. I mean, I've been to civil wars and we don't want that here. I mean, I've, I've seen what happens and it's, it's brutal. And once it's broken, it's very hard to put back together again. Chuck, I think some of the best stories that came out of season two 
were the ones about you. <laughs> Would you share that view? <laughs> or, or is that not your favorite part? No, listen, when y'all surprised me with my daughter and her fiance, well, she could put that in her husband. That was one of the highlights for me. Before we go any further, I just had a question before we get to our guests. Which is scared the hell out of me because yeah. it's a surprise to me. It is. I'm wondering, because we've had a couple of weeks of talking about this now, if you've settled on a song you're going to dance to with Christiana at her wedding. Well, I'm going to let her listen to about 10 different songs. But the leader in the clubhouse is Zach Brown. I love you the most. But the man who The man who loved you the most. The man who loves you the most. Those words just resonate with me because I know how you feel about Maggie. There's a little light in your eyes. And when she's around and bring the kids, the joy she brings you. And that's the way I feel about my daughter. You know, she hasn't lived at home in a long time. But every time she comes to visit, I feel like it's Christmas. Uh, you know, like I say, she's my only kid. I know you got a few kids. and Chad got <laughs> 77. Um, <laughs> but, man, it's just something about a daughter. And I just love it. I'm the man who's going to love you the most. And yeah, I just So seeing her is like Christmas for you. Oh, it is. Well, Merry Christmas, Chuck. What's going on? Hi, Dad. Oh, my goodness. Hey, baby girl. <laughs> oh, the whole gang oh. is here. Oh, my goodness. How are you doing? I'm good. Do you see Ilya's here, too? You talk about special, special, special guests here, Chuckster. This is good as it can get for Chuck right now. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> this is awesome. Ilya, have you, have you been a basketball fan for a long time? You know, I have not. Um... <laughs> well, and and here's, here's the reason I ask that. So how long did it take for you to learn that Christiana's father was, was Charles? And did that mean anything to you? Uh, so uh, friends pointed out that, that Charles was Christiana's dad, and he was probably one of the five basketball players that I have ever knew about that I can name. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Charles as a kid from the Space Jam movie. That I really enjoyed, whereas I wasn't really a big basketball fan. Yeah, I don't think he cared very much. Neither did you, Christiana, because I want you to know, you know, number one, I'm so proud of your brain and you've been a nice person. But when I made you play basketball and soccer and lacrosse, volleyball and i was like my daughter hates sports <laughs> and ernie the thing about chris Allen, she's always been like six feet tall and i was like she's gonna be the best player in college she's gonna be the best player in the WNBA. so when she was uh in her early teens i said chris Allen, you're gonna play basketball you're gonna play volleyball you're gonna play soccer you're gonna be great and ernie i realized probably two years in i don't think my daughter likes sports Go ahead. What's your side of this, Christiana? I would love to tell my side of the story. So when I played basketball, I was forced to do so. And I was really not gifted. And it was it was really bad. I really have no hand-eye coordination. Um, I was always fast <laughs> at running. But in terms of actually playing the sports, it was really bad. And my dad was standing on the sidelines and all of the parents were like, you know, cheering on their kids, just being really relaxed, very supportive. And my dad was screaming, you have designer jeans. You're better than that. So that was really traumatizing. You have designer jeans. <laughs> G-E-N-E-S. My uh, goodness, Chuckster. And it, 
it scared me so badly that I actually, unfortunately, made my first basket on the other team's basket. So I gave the other team two points and I retired at age 12. I said, I'm done. This is not for me. Y'all had crazy ass Rick Mahorn on here talking about me and stories. While I was on vacation, a well-deserved vacation, I should say. Well-deserved? You just sit around and talk on TV. That's not, you're not working hard. Everybody uh, needs a break from that. <laughs> yeah, yes, we do. Uh, you mean from Shaq, but good call. <laughs> Rick Mahorn, welcome to the steam room. Oh, well, thank you. At least I know somebody can get in the steam room. Your big ass wouldn't get in there. I don't even want to start with you, T TK. Hey, oh, boy. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> no, TK, hold on. I want a public apology because sure. when I'm listening to you on the radio, you always tell this story that I was too soft to hit Michael Jordan. Oh, yeah, you was too soft. And I don't want to hear that shit, Charlie. Charlie, I hey, don't want to hear on, it. Hold on, hold on. First of all, we when we playing together, we get ready to play the Bulls. He says we got the hammer, Michael Jordan. Chuck, every time he comes down the lane, knock the shit out of Michael Jordan. I'm like Rick. I'm the star of the team. I can't be getting in foul trouble. CTK. He had himself six fouls. He had Lambeer six fouls. He had Robin six fouls. He had Sally six fouls. He had James Edwards six fouls. I'm the only one got six fouls who can't get in foul trouble. So I want a public apology for you bashing me on your radio show. No, nah, f*** that. No, nah, I don't even want to hear that. Hey, listen, Charles, listen. Let me let me tell you this. I may have had six fouls with the bad boys, but one thing that I know, if you weren't physical with Michael Jordan, I ain't asked you to knock the crap out of him. I just said, I want you to hit him. And if we hit him, you know good and well they ain't going to call a second foul after I hit him. Come on, Charles. This ain't, this is what? What are we talking about? Oh, intentional foul? Man, forget that. I don't want to hear it. Yeah, and I ain't apologizing. Yeah. <laughs> You wanted a championship. I was trying to help you. Chuck, I, I got a question. Minute Bowl. Just one story. <laughs> you tell it, Charles. I plead the fifth. Okay, I'll tell you this one story. I'm not going to tell that other story. I, I'm going to tell, I'm gonna tell the, the, the wife story. Are you waving? You telling the room service story? No, I'm not telling. Hell no. I'm not telling that, that story. Hey, TK, this dude was hilarious, man. I mean, and he was so much fun. I mean, he was he was great. I miss Manute. I miss him too. But Todd, tell him about the time we were on the bus, and he said, "I'm gonna whoop your ass." I'm gonna... <laughs> he took the bat out, and he started trying to swing him cynical, and he just tried to whoop your ass. I I need you, Charlie. I'll whoop your ass. Uh, <laughs> hey, Charlie Barkley. That was my name. Charlie. He couldn't say Charlie. The horn called me Charlie, and my said Charlie Barkley, and he it, it was so hilarious. Charlie Barkley, you and Mr. Mahorn, y'all. I mean, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> y'all, y'all, y'all ain't shit. Y'all, <laughs> this is great listening to you guys tell stories. Hey, I love you, brother. You always wanted a story about Charles. I got a billion of them. We had some good ones. Listen, I love to share these stories because. It's my life. Yeah, like Spike Lee talking about uh, the late night card games with the Dream Team. Anytime I'm around a great Spike Lee and I can't, can't say Spike without Sam Jackson, man, I, I just love being around those guys. They make me a better actor. But just having Spike around the Dream Team, man, was worth it.
If you were to be asked, as you are being asked right now, what's your favorite Charles Barkley story from hanging out with the Chuckster? Barcelona, hotel room, Charles, <laughs> Magic, MJ, and me. I'm not playing cards. I'm just there. I wish I could have had a camera there. You had to probably be in the gym at 8 o'clock in the morning. I left at 6. <laughs> Charles, you know that night? Oh, Chuck, yeah. be, be forthcoming, Chuck, here. Come on now. Back up the story. We played cards every night, all night. And we would, like, get, okay, so we're like, okay, guys, we got to play it, practice or <laughs> do something. Like, we need at least a power nap in there. But we played cards every single night, Ernie. Another person who would come is Scotty. But me, Magic, and Michael and Scotty would play cards every single night. Like, we'd go to dinner, then we'd gamble from, like, 8 o'clock at night to 6 in the morning, and we'd run to the room and take a quick power nap and go to practice. I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy. Let me ask you a question. Was I the only non-player ever allowed into that environment? I think you might be the only person that we ever <laughs> allowed in there. <laughs> I mean, because I, I, there was no other people were allowed in there, but you were the only person who was not part uh, of the family. You, you, we made you an honorary brother then to come in and watch <laughs> and have fun. So I'm honored. I've always think about that. And, and the game is so competitive. And then throwing the cards on the table and your mother this, your mother that. <laughs> and it, I remember sometimes I just fell out of my chair. And I was rolling around on the rug. It was hilarious. Hilarious. What kind of uh, dollars were being played for back then, Chuckster? Oh. Serious money. Yeah, you like hundreds of thousands of dollars already. Every night? Every night. <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was a minimum of $100,000 a night. A minimum. I tell you what, the worst plane trip was like we were flying to Barcelona. Man, on an eight to ten hour flight, you can lose your house. I mean, it was it was crazy. I'm like, land the plane, land the plane. I was like, because you get on a bad because see, because Michael's got this really uh, annoying habit. He always tried to just keep raising and bidding because he's got the most money. He was always trying to buy the pot. He didn't realize the rest of us had money too. Uh, we don't have his type of money. Well, Magic does. Me and Scotty were the paupers at the table. Uh, we like we and Scotty could go broke actually, but Magic and Michael had a ton, a ton of money. But Michael always tried to buy the pot, which was hilarious. That that's that's my story, Ernie. And, and I always uh, serious business. I will always treasure that night in Barcelona. First of all, I would have been the poorest guy in there. <laughs> I'd have had to make I'd have make Malcolm X two, three, four, five. <laughs> Or Magic Johnson's memory of watching the Mike Tyson-Michael Spinks fight with you. <laughs> you know, things like that, you just think about them and just laugh. But I got to tell you this story, uh, Ernie, right quick. So we at the Tyson-Michael Spinks fight, the biggest fight in the world. Both dudes undefeated. So, you know, Charles, I, I love him because he's people really don't know Charles Barkley. He helped so many people. There were times when we got off TNT at what? 1.30 in the morning, 2 o'clock. Charles yeah. was going to the hotel, sleeping for only two or three hours, had to catch a 6 o'clock flight because he had committed to a golf tournament or 
some fundraiser, and he would not miss. Charles, you taught me a lot during that time, brother. Thank you for having the biggest heart. But I, I got to finish this story about you. So we're in Atlantic City. So it's Charles, Michael, Patrick, me, Lonzo Morning. So Charles Barkley goes to the concession stand, and he's taking all the orders. What you want? What you want? What you want? What you want? So the bell rings now. He's gone, Ernie, to the concession stand. <laughs> the bell rings for the first round. Of- <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> Mike Tyson runs over in 18 seconds <laughs> and knocks Michael Speaks out. Here comes Charles about a minute later. <laughs> what happened? And we all said, you missed the whole fight. <laughs> hey, I'll never forget that. I will never forget that. He took all the Coke beers and everything, and he just threw them up in the air. He was uh-huh. so Shuckster, I don't know that you've actually ever revealed that story. We appreciate that, Magic. <laughs> we had to tell him everything that happened. He was so mad. I've never seen Child that mad, especially we all had ringside seats. So, <laughs> right. what? Shuckster, that's that is absolute gold. Ernie, right I had to go. Hey, I had to go get all the beers and sodas and stuff because I was a low man on the totem pole. <laughs> 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 Oh, that's tremendous. Hey, hey, you're the big dog now, baby. Don't worry about it. Roles have changed. Don't worry about a thing. So in short, if anything we'd ever do on The Steam Room is short, this season had it all. Uh, So as we wrap it up, we want to leave you with these words from season two's very first guest, and that was Raptors president of basketball operations, Masai Ujiri. His words left Charles feeling inspired back in December of 2020, and we hope they do the same for you. When's the first time you thought about, like, I want to be a general manager in the NBA? You know, uh, it's it's funny, uh, Chuck, people ask that question, you know, like, and for me, I think a lot with youth, I, when they ask me advice, I always say, show more passion than ambition. You know, show more passion than ambition because a lot of us try to push out, oh, I want to be, I want to be on that position. You haven't even done 10 minutes as being a scout. You want to be director of scouting. You haven't done one month as being a director of scouting. You want to be assistant GM. You haven't even done how many, then you want to go and be GM. You, you have to have the passion for what you do. And for me, how it happened for me was when I worked for Brian Colangelo or when I worked for Jeff Weltman or Kiki Vandewey, I gave it my all, you know, like, and I served them. I served them, served the team, and give the best information that you can. And I'm telling you, if you do as good as that, people will spot you. Teams will spot you. When they see that you know what you're talking about or you're trying at least, you know, like to be the best, to show your passion. For me, that's when it started to open up, you know, like to me that, you know what, I'm going to work my hardest, you know, like, and I did never pinpointed any job. When the Cronkies called me about the job in Denver, you know, like I never called them, never asked them, never pushed anywhere. I didn't have an agent. They called me. 
you know, like to get that job. And same thing with this Toronto job. I don't have an agent. So maybe by the grace of God, I'm not jobless, you know, like and then I have to get an agent. But for me, I want I want to have that thing where I'm pinpointed for the job that I do rather than a promotion or anything like that. To me, you have to win. You must win. This business, this sport is about winning. You win on the court, you win off the court, and while you do it, you bring people along. That's what it's about to me. Damn, Ernie. I want to put a uniform on right now. (laughs) I know. So until next season, you loyal steamers, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here every week. And uh, thanks for keeping your towels on, too. We'll see you next time.